Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jeff Hiller. She would say, I'm so glad you're a member of the LGBTQA community. I don't know what the A is, but she fucking did. That and more. But before that, oh my goodness, if you have not become a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk, please go check it out, folks. If you care about what we do, you know, it's not easy creating a show that is so uncensored. I think the very nature of risk, the fact that people feel free to talk about the most emotional stuff or the most controversial stuff or sometimes just the most outrageously uncensored, hilarious stuff, makes the show harder to market in some instances. I think many, 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 many people would fall in love with Risk if they gave it a good chance. But a lot of people are scared because they hear, oh my gosh, it's not as easily and universally PG-rated, family-friendly, all that stuff. The fact that we're not under the aegis of a big corporation, the fact that we're not a member of a big podcasting network, we kind of have to remain an outlier. We kind of have to remain independent to be creating such a special show. I mean, it's really true that you are going to, on a regular basis, be hearing stories here told with an amount of raw honesty that you're just very unlikely to find anywhere else. And it takes a big team of people pouring their heart and soul into preparing all of this material and keeping this show and our tours and our workshops, keeping all of it running. So we are not in any way exaggerating when we say that it means the world to us. It means the future of the show when 
you teach your friends and family how to download it when you get on Facebook or Twitter and say, hey, you guys, you got to check out the second story in this episode right here. Here's the link. Or when you go to iTunes and leave a comment and, and rate the show. Or when you go to patreon.com slash risk and become a patron, you can give $1 a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever it may be. There's so much bonus content there at Patreon. Oh my gosh, those original episodes from the first few seasons are amazing. They've taken all the ads out and remastered them. They're remarkable. Anyway, yes, please become a patron and help us out. We dearly appreciate it. You go to patreon.com slash risk. We want to give a big shout out right now to Ben Cundiff. He uh, is a $25 per month Patreon patron. And oh my gosh, we are so grateful for that. Thank you, Ben. And thank you to everyone who's showing us support in any way you can. Did I mention following us on Twitter and Facebook? Both places, we're at Risk Show. And on Twitter, I'm also at the Kevin Allison. All righty. One more thing, and that is that Stamps.com saves you time and money, which you can use to grow your business. I can mail any letter, any package, using just my computer and printer, and then the mailman picks it up. You can avoid the hassle of going to the post office and mailing everything from postcards to envelopes to packages, domestic or international. Create your own Stamps.com account in minutes online with no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. Unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. It's easy and reliable. They'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. Stamps.com will help you decide the best class for your mail based on your needs. No need to lease an expensive postage meter. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. Right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk stamps.com never go to the post office again now here's the show Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Thievery Corporation behind me now. We're calling this week's episode Fight or Flight. Let me tell you something. We record so many more stories than we're actually able to share on the podcast. There will be months, like, for example, January, this past January. We did six live shows. So, you know, we end up with a lot of stories that kind of sit for a little while in the pipeline. And sometimes I just got to look back and be like, oh, my God, I forgot how amazing this was and that was. And oh, my God, yeah, 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 we got to get that out there. (laughs) 
So that's the case with this week's episode. I was like, fuck it. No new material. There is so much great material that came from months ago. We got to get some of it out there. So today's stories come to us from Austin, Texas, from Montreal, Canada, and from Brooklyn, New York City. Holy cow. These are all sort of self-defense sorts of stories. Stories of people who found themselves trying to navigate how to take care of themselves while also <laughs> relating to other people who might not have had their best interests at heart. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the amazing Jeff Hiller. Oh my God, such a wonderful guy and such a wonderful resume. He's been on Ugly Betty and 30 Rock and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. But before that, we are going to hear from Kate Caldwell. This story was told at an enormous show we did in Austin, Texas. God, do we love performing in Austin. Always such a wonderful time. Always such great people. Kate Caldwell can be found on Twitter at a wild Kate, and here she is now with a story we call Girl Power. We knew all of our neighbors growing up. Most were families with kids our age, and then there was also this elderly widow, Mrs. Martin, who we would visit, not entirely invited. I think because of our doting grandparents, my sisters and I just assumed like all old people wanted us around just in general. So we would just show up at her front door like, hey, we're here even though you didn't ask us to be. Please let us into your home so we may eat your hard candies and entertain you with song and dance. <laughs> we sang a lot. Uh, we still do. My mom has only recently given up enforcing the no singing at the dinner table rule. Uh, Mrs. Martin had a daughter and grandchildren out of town, so I don't think she minded too much. She did keep giving us those hard candies. This was Northwest Austin in probably one of the last eras when kids like roamed free and adults were somewhere else. Our neighborhood was not fancy, but suburban, like very quiet and safe. And we played outside all the time. We had this 200 year old great oak tree in the front yard that was the perfect climbing tree. I lived in that tree. And our front yard was also host to like a number of games mostly kickball games from like kids around the neighborhood uh, that we would keep going until like the sunset or until our very sports-inclined father coached, yelled enough at one of his not-sports-inclined daughters to where she would quit in protest. Guilty. <laughs> Mrs. Martin had this really steep driveway and one of my favorite things to do was ride my bike up the big hill next to our house all the way up to the top and then coast down, letting the momentum take me all the way over to and then up and down her driveway. And then I just head right back up the hill in kind of this infinity loop. And this is what I was doing one day when at the top of the driveway, uh, this beat up old truck pulls in right next to me, maybe a foot away. I look over and there's a man in the truck 
and he's got like shoulder length dark hair and a mustache and like a camo bucket hat pulled down pretty much to his eyes. He was old, but not old, old. I was eight, so that probably means he was in his 30s, which I think we can all acknowledge now is not old at all. <laughs> I remember thinking at the time like, oh, He's here to see Mrs. Martin. This must be her son-in-law. Knew she had a daughter and grandkids, so logic, right? I don't want to be in the way, so I move my bike off the driveway into the yard to leave that way, but as soon as I go, he pulls back out of the driveway and then onto the street um, right in front of me, maybe five or six feet away, which I thought was pretty weird. Like, why is Mrs. Martin's son-in-law leaving before they even visit? I was really clinging to this narrative. Uh, this is actually one of the first times I remember getting that feeling of dissonance when the events that are happening in front of me don't line up with like the story I'm assigning them in my head. He uh, calls out of the open window like, hey little girl, what's your name? And I don't want to tell him my name, but I also don't want to be rude. So I think about it and I opt for direct honesty and say, I don't think I'm supposed to tell you that. <laughs> He's like, where do you live? And I'm like, I don't think I'm supposed to tell you that either. I have a downward view into his truck. I notice that he is holding something in his lap and stroking it. To put it delicately, he is exposed and touching himself. He asked me if I've ever seen one of these before. Now, eight-year-old me has never in her life seen an adult man penis. Never, not once. I have two younger sisters and our dad had his own bathroom. But I am not about to admit to this stranger that I don't know something, like admit a weakness. So I'm just like, yeah, no big deal. In my head, I'm all, oh my God, I think that's a penis. I don't know, but I think that's a penis. But out loud, I'm just like, yeah, casual. It's a Tuesday. <laughs> then he asked me to get in the truck. And that's when it clicks. This man is trying to kidnap me. I have this moment of like, oh, they said this might happen. And it's happening. <laughs> Reason number one why I was not the kid to try this on. I had from a very early age a deep-seated preoccupation with getting kidnapped. Uh, <laughs> when my grandfather got a video camera in 1985, we began this tradition of making movies with my family and not like making home movies of just taping stuff, like remaking movies. The first one we did that year was Star Wars. One of my cousins was Luke Skywalker, one was Darth Vader, my grandmother was Chewbacca, so that she could wear this old fur coat. I was almost three, and my mom wanted me to play Princess Leia, which I flatly refused, because Princess Leia gets kidnapped. And let me tell you, for me to turn down something at this time in my life with princess in the title, is unheard of, it's huge, but I would not even be pretend kidnapped. My middle sister Kim played Princess Leia and I played an original role. <laughs> Princess Sarah. 
who was Princess Leia's cousin and who was not kidnapped, but did go along voluntarily for Leia's kidnapping. <laughs> the realization of what this man is trying to do is unsettling, but it also brings this strange feeling of relief. Um, it makes sense out of everything that has been so confusing so far. The stories finally match up, but I'm stuck. He and his truck are in between me and anywhere else in the world. I know that distance is one of the only things that I have going for me. Like if I get too close to the truck, he could just grab me. Uh, the way that it's positioned, the only way around it is around the front where if he decides to, he could just hit the gas pedal and hit me. It's like we're in this high stakes game of sharks and minnows where he is the shark and I am the only minnow. Except I'm not. I look into my front yard, which is like really close and really far all at the same time. And I see my two sisters playing in the oak tree across the street. Kim is six and Courtney is three. And they don't know that this guy is a kidnapper. Like they don't even know that we're in danger right now. So I have to get away, not just to protect myself, but also to protect them. But how? I mean, they tell you this might happen, but they really don't tell you how to get out of it. He asked me again to get in the car, and I again say no, but I do start moving really slowly downhill with my bike. I think he must have assumed that I was going to get in the truck anyway, because he leans over to open the passenger's side door, and I recognize this as my moment. So as he stretches out across the seat, I jump on my bike and fly across the front of his truck, uh, jump the curb up into our yard, get off my bike, turn around just in time to see that he has followed me and is now in front of our house. But he's further away. He's maybe 10 feet now. And I'm behind the truck. I can see that it's a Nissan and that there's like a bunch of junk in the bed. My sisters are there. Kim stays in the tree, but Courtney comes over to me. But I don't even have time to warn them before he opens his door and calls out asking our names. I'm like, we're not going to tell you that more to my sisters than to him. He then tells us to come over. He's got something in the truck to show us. Courtney, my youngest sister, starts heading over, and I grab her, and I say, no. You need to go. But of course he doesn't. This isn't the labyrinth, right? Like saying you have no power over me doesn't break any sort of spell. I'm not sure how much more dialogue and time passes. The world just stops moving for me at this point. Eventually he does leave, saying he'll see us again on his way out. He knows where we live now. I wait until his truck disappears before I run inside just yelling, Mom! Mom! We were almost kidnapped just now! Mom! Mom! My parents have been inside this entire time. My mom's like, Katie, what are you talking about? And I'm like, Mom, we almost were kidnapped just now. Just now in the front yard, we were almost kidnapped. And she looks at me and says, Catherine, I will believe you 
But tell me that this really happened, and I mean really happened, which was really fair, because I had a really fantastic imagination as a child, and that created a very nebulous relationship with the truth. But I tell her, like, Mom, Mom, this really happened, and, and I know how they can find him. Reason number two why I was not the kid to try this on. My parents were very involved with the Don't Mess With Texas anti-littering campaign that was going on, and I had developed the habit, as we drove around, of uh, looking for litterers. And if I saw one, memorizing their license plate number to give to the police. Which, by the way, like, never worked. Like, nobody ever got a ticket from me tattling on them. But, as I'm standing behind this man's truck, as he's trying to convince me to get in it, I am memorizing his license plate number to give to the police. My mom believes me and is like, okay, let's go next door and talk to Mr. Fuentes, our neighbor, and also a detective with the Austin Police Department, and also reason number three why this guy just chose so, so poorly. A week after this happened, my mom picks us up from school as she normally does, but instead of going home, we go down to the police station. And there I'm shown like binders of mugshots, not to pick out a person, but to pick out features, like you know, this kind of nose and, and these eyes. Uh, I was very frustrated um, because I hadn't actually ever gotten a good look at his face. And it is only as an adult that it has occurred to me that that was on purpose. Uh, because he was soliciting children and did not want to be recognized. But at the time, I'm just disappointed in myself. After that, I go to a room with a lady detective where I pick out an anatomically correct doll and reenact the whole scene. Uh, I remember debating whether I should include that whole, like, penis thing, uh, just because it was weird and gross and, like, just, like, shameful. This is the first time I ever remember feeling ashamed for something someone else has done to me. Once it's all over, I get to go to a room and pick out a toy to take home with me. I pick a stuffed bear uh, that I later on try to make a policeman's uniform for out of felt and hot glue, uh, which was hideous. It just ruined it with crafts. Um, a couple weeks after the, the trip to the station, my mom gets a call saying that they have caught this guy. Uh, he's got a record of doing things like this. There'd been a couple of other reports around the time of ours. They told her that one of the reasons why they caught him as fast as they did was because they had this license plate number. He pleads guilty, so there's no trial, which I find incredibly disappointing. Because you guys, I was ready to be a witness. I was gonna take the stand, tell him what happened, and maybe sing a song. I had a plan. I didn't find this event terribly traumatic at the time. That's due in large part to the privilege of how and where I grew up. I got out basically as unscathed as I could. And I think that's also due to the fact that the true consequences of what might have happened just weren't even in my world. At the time, the idea of being taken was bad enough. It's not until I'm an adult that it is sunken in like what I was maybe going to be taken for, right? 
uh, like that he was not just going to give me a ride or keep me away from my parents, but that he was going to molest me or rape me or whatever. I don't think about the what ifs too often. I'm just lucky and grateful that this man was so obviously bad and not an adult that I had been told I should trust. Now, this is certainly not the only bad man I've met in my life, and I have not always gotten out unscathed. I think about bad men a lot these days, for whatever reason. (laughs) And it helps to remind myself that they don't always win. They can be beaten, sometimes even by a little girl. Thank you. People are not always what they seem to be in real life. How do you know whether they're good or bad? Stranger danger, that is the truth. Don't talk to strangers, just walk away. Now repeat after me. When I say stranger, you say danger. Stranger danger. Stranger danger. Do we talk to strangers? Danger. Do we walk with strangers? Danger. Do we take anything from strangers? Danger. Do we go with strangers? Danger. Stranger danger. Stranger danger. Stranger danger. Stranger danger. In Christmas of 1999, I came out to my parents. What? He's gay, he really passes. But I am, I stand before you, a gay American. I know it's a shock, but you'll just have to hold onto your seats and ride the wave. I'll never forget the words that my mom said when I told her I was gay, she said, I know. And I'll never forget the words that my dad said. He said no words. (laughs) He didn't talk to me for the rest of the night. (laughs) But the next morning, they hugged me goodbye. Because, you know, this queen waited till the very last second to say that I was gay. And I gave them a book. It was this book called Now That You Know. Do you know that book? (laughs) It's like real old school. It was like photoshopped pictures on the front or whatever of like beautiful people in like the woods or whatever and uh, it's like I know it's so hard to have a gay child but now that you know here's what else you should do and I gave it to them because I worked at a bookstore at the time and then for three years we just never spoke about it again we just didn't talk about it but then like two Christmases later I was home and I was in my mom's office and I, I saw this book All of the books had their spines out, but this one book had its pages out. And I pulled it out, and it was, now that you know. (laughs) And it was dog-eared and highlighted and had little things written in the margins. (laughs) And and, uh, I thought that was so beautiful, you know? And there was something that broke open in my mom when I told her I was gay. Like made this compassion egg break and ooze. (laughs) This metaphor is twisted, but it 
Stick with me. There was a yoke of compassion and she scrambled it. Anyhow, it was beautiful. And it spread out into her whole life. And then when she retired, she like fucking leaned in. She was like, yes, Cheryl, I'm leaning in. And she became liberal capital. She would say to me things like, you know, I'd like to set you up with someone. I met a young gay man. (laughs) She had terrible taste in gay men, but she did talk to me about being gay. And then she started watching Rachel Maddow because I guess, I don't know, she was like, I like gays now, let's do this. She was very into Rachel Maddow. She would call me and tell me all about Rachel Maddow and what Rachel said. And then she found Jon Stewart and she just loved everything that Jon Stewart said. And then when Colbert came on, oh, my mom had such a hard on for Stephen Colbert. I mean, she loved him. She really loved him. She'd just say, "Ah, he's so smart and I just think he's so cute. And my mom was not a liberal person. She was born in 1944 in Texas. She used a gallon of hairspray a day. Like, the woman had large hair. She was not someone who wanted to be a liberal. But she just did it. That thing that happened when I came out, she was like, oh, I believe in feminism now, too, because I worked and men were mean. And then that led to, you know, border patrol is ridiculous. I mean, this country was founded on immigrants. How should we tell them that they shouldn't be there? And I was like, work, mama, work. And then my uncle is a very racist cop, and my mama posted Black Lives Matter as her Facebook cover photo. Thank you very much. Yes, queen. She walked in an Occupy San Antonio march. My dad dropped her off at the top and he picked her up at the bottom. Oh, yeah, honey. And let me tell you what else. She was in the rotunda when Wendy Davis did her historic filibuster campaign saying that, no, these Planned Parenthood communities need to stay open. And she was there. She was there. She was there. Yes. And then she would say, I'm so glad you're a member of the LGBTQA community. I don't know what the A is, but she fucking did. (laughs) Mama was there. Mama was hot. Mama was liberal. And it was beautiful. It was so beautiful. But along the way, her friends in San Antonio, Texas, were like, not having it. (laughs) They were all tossing shade and nasty stuff. This one friend was a really good friend. I mean, she was there in the hospital the day I was born. She was at every family gathering. When she got divorced, she stayed at our house for three weeks. She was our family. We were with her every holiday. Then when she got remarried, we had to go over to her holiday house and watch all of her stepchildren open gifts while we just sat there with nothing to do. Anyway, that's me just addition a little anger at you. Uh, Her name was Nadine, and Nadine told my mom, it's not in my heart to accept gay people into the church. Because, see, they love church down in Texas. Now, between you and me, I'm not like really wanting full acceptance in the church. I kind of don't give an AF. Uh, but my mom wanted all them letters, honey. She wanted the Q's and the A's. 
She said to Nadine, I choose my son. <laughs> and she dumped Nadine, which is a big deal, you know? Uh, so anyway, last October, my mom passed away. It got bad at the end. She was on oxygen. She was basically bed-bound. She had this bed that, like, you know. She had to, like, install a doorbell so that when somebody came to the door, she could look on her phone and see who was there and talk to them or whatever. She passed away. And when she did, Nadine came and helped take care of the family. Helped take care of my dad, which I appreciated. My husband's name is Neil, and her son's name is Neil. And she was like, the only thing she could say about Neil was... Like his name! <laughs> that was like all she could say. Oh, and then one time she was like, last night I went out and I ordered a black coffee. Can I still say black? And I was like, oh, fuck you, Nadine. <laughs> and then one day Nadine came to the door and I walked outside and I was like, actually, my dad is sleeping. And she was like, well, I just wanted to give you this pumpkin bread, which not for nothing, it tastes good, so I took it. <laughs> And then she was like, I just want you to know, I love you. I was there the day you were born. And I, I, I just, it wasn't in my heart to go to those meetings. Those meetings, there were a lot of women there. And they, they later, they, your mom didn't like some of them. And I, I just couldn't do it. It just wasn't in my heart. And the whole time, I just gave her a nasty stank eye. I was like, Meh. I didn't give her nothing. I was all cold and harsh. And she didn't pick up on any of it. <laughs> and then I called Neil and I was like, oh, I saw Nadine. She didn't even pick up on it. Can you believe that? And he was like, well, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> and then my dad was like, uh, Jeff, can you help me with the iPhone? I don't understand the iPhone. He loves to say iPhone. <laughs> and I looked at it. And it was all of these notifications from Ring, which is the doorbell that my nephew installed so that my mom could see people. And I like swiped right. <laughs> uh, and it was a video that came up of me going outside and talking to Nadine. And the first thing I noticed was I have terrible posture. Truly. I was like, <laughs> I'm a gnome. Uh, and then the video started playing and I saw my encounter with Nadine. And Nadine said, Jeff, I love you. And I was like, here's where I give the stank eye. And you know what I said? I love you too, Nadine. <laughs> and I gave her a hug. <laughs> and then she said, don't you see? It just wasn't in my heart. And I touched her on the right arm and I said, I know, I know. <laughs> And she said, you know, your mom, some of those women weren't friends. And I was like, well, it happens. It happens. And then she walked away and she said, I love you, Jeff. And I said, I love you, Nadine. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I was so shocked by that. And I was also so pissed at myself. I was like, you're supposed to give her the stank guy. No wonder she didn't recognize it. You were genuinely hugging her and loving her. And then I thought about my mom, and I thought, like, her whole thing was compassion. She had compassion for people and love for people. And her dying wish in her obituary was like, don't send flowers. Do something kind for someone. It'll make my heart sing. 
<laughs> I feel like telling Nadine, it's okay, I love you, is doing something nice and bringing some compassion to some small-minded, dumb Texas lady <laughs> that I think my mom would be really happy about today. So I'm glad I hugged her. Though I really wish I hadn't said that final I love you. Thank you so much. This is Lavender Diamond behind me now. And we just heard from the amazing Jeff Hiller. You can find him at hillertime.com. And before that, we heard a wonderful little interstitial uh, stranger danger sort of thing from our remarkable episode editor, Mr. Jeff Barr. Our final story today comes to us from one of our new favorites, the wonderful Mark Redmond. Mark has now shared phenomenal stories with us in New York City, in Burlington, Vermont, and this up in Montreal. Now, Mark is the executive director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, Vermont, and he has his own podcast called So Shines a Good Deed. Here he is now, Mark Redmond at the Risk Live Show in Montreal with a story we call the most unlikely places. I started working with runaway and homeless and at-risk teenagers in the early 1980s in New York City. By 1990, I was still in it, but I was in a big, giant nonprofit 
doing administrative work, pushing papers around basically. And that's because three years earlier, I had a staff member uh, who I supervised and cared about killed by a homeless kid. 19-year-old kid, high in crack cocaine, looking for money, stabbed to death a 65-year-old nun who I was responsible for, and I got the call in the middle of the night and had to go up there. After that happened, just kind of took the wind out of my sails. I didn't really want to have any contact with kids like that. I didn't really think there was a way to help them. And I was actually thinking of leaving the field and go selling computers or something like that. It was in 1990, August, that I got a phone call from a new supervisor at this nonprofit, and he called and said, we have a 20-bed shelter for homeless teenage boys in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. It's pretty much of a disaster. We're going to fire the director. We want you to run it. I'd been there once before, and it was called Epiphany Youth Hostel. Williamsburg in 1990 was rough. Now it's all like Starbucks and hipsters. Uh, back then it was basically burned out buildings, rubble-strewn lots. You'd hear gunshots all night long. The kids who lived at Epiphany were like 19, 20 years old. Former gang members, kids coming out of prison with nowhere to go, kids sleeping on subways, kids sleeping on the streets. So I said no. I said, I am not interested in running that program. I already have one person I cared about killed by a kid like this. I don't want to do it. Thinking of leaving the field entirely. But he kept asking. He kept calling me up. And he said, I will teach you how to work with kids like this. I know how to do it. I'll teach you. I kept saying no. He kept asking. I finally said yes. The day before I was supposed to start, he calls me. And his boss is with him on the phone. And he goes, said, we're going to send you a fax. Faxes then came out like toilet paper. There was no email then. It was like it came out on a roll. So I read this fax. It's essentially a petition signed by every person at the shelter. I mean the maintenance man, the cook, everybody, with a series of demands. The first demand is, A, we want our old director back. B, we don't know who Mark Redman is, but whoever he is, we don't want him as our director. So my heart just sank when I read that. Now, this is what I'm expecting Paul and his boss to say. Don't go there tomorrow. Let's slow this down. Let us go and talk to the staff and hear them out. That's what I'm expecting them to say. Instead, they say, the hell with them. Screw them. You go there tomorrow just like you're supposed to. You show them. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I showed up. I learned a lot on that first day. There are thousands of homeless teenagers in New York City. There's 20 beds, only 10 kids are even there. And the few kids are there, kids are sleeping until noon. Nobody's going to school, nobody's working. They're basically watching TV and playing video games the whole day. Plus, the place is just dirty. It was the paint was peeling off the walls, the furniture was broken, it was awful. Things got worse than there. On the third day, the fourth day, I'm there and the cook comes in to see me. She was a woman. Early 60s, her name was Margaret, she was from Trinidad, Tobago, and she comes in to me and says, uh, yeah, we got a full shipment of food yesterday, but I don't even think I have enough to cook the dinner tonight. I was like, what do you mean? We had a full shipment of food, how come you can't cook dinner? And she just like shook her head, looked disgusted, and said, this has happened many times before. So I called a friend of mine who used to work at this place and who moved to Illinois. I said, I'm the new director here, and the food's missing, what's going on? She said, you have a group of guys, it's all men. They're all from that area, five or six of them who are incredibly corrupt. 
I'm sure when they saw that food shipment, in the middle of the night, they just pulled their cars up and emptied that food out and just sold it locally. She said it's also widely believed that they sell drugs to the kids in the shelter and that they have drug parties there in the shelter all the time. I said, why hasn't anybody done anything about this? She said, the other staff are pretty good, but they're all frightened of these guys. Your predecessor, everybody is afraid of these guys. So I said, well, who are they? So she went through, you know, Thomas and Henry and Robert. She went through all of the names. I said, how about this guy, Darren? There's a guy, Darren, who works there. He's always telling me what a good job I'm doing. She was like, Darren, he's the worst. He's a snake. Don't trust Darren no matter what you do. So anyway, before she hung up, she said, there are good staff there. That could be a great place for homeless kids, and you could be the one to do it. And then she said, I'll never forget, she said to me, and God will be with you. Let me tell you, I remembered that many times. It gave me a lot of comfort. So anyway, I go back to work. This is, my, this is the way I think. If I confront these guys and tell them I know what they're doing, they'll stop, right? They don't think that way. They don't think that way. In fact, Darren comes up to me and goes, Mark, I think I know who's still in the food. I said, I think I know too. He goes, who do you think it is? I said, I think it's you. <laughs> he just goes, no, it's not me, it's not me. So from that point on, it just became a pitched battle. I would come into work and there'd be these unsigned notes slipped under my door. We're going to destroy you. You will regret ever having come here. I came in one day, they had broken in and just completely ransacked my office. It was one thing after the other. Another time, uh, Paul calls me and he says, uh, listen, I'm going to ask you a simple question. Did you give $25 to a kid named Jose? I said, no. He said, did you give $25 to anybody? I said, no, what are you talking about? He reads me a letter he's got from a kid that says, Mark Redman offered me $25 if I would tell you he's doing a good job. So I sat down with the kid. I was like, why did you do this? He said one of these guys had given him $25 if he would write that letter and get me in trouble. He wouldn't tell me the name of the staff member, and I didn't want to put him in the middle of it either. So, and then a week later, same thing, now it was up to $40. So all of this crap is going on. Oh, another time this guy, Darren, he calls my boss, Paul. Like, I want a meeting with Paul. He calls Paul in, and in front of me, he says, Mark called me a spick the other day. I was like, no way. No way. So all this is going on. In the meantime, I'm starting to get to know these kids. You know, I would stay late. I would have dinner with them. And, you know, they were all, first of all, they were all African-American and Hispanic kids. They were all from poverty. They'd grown up in the projects, gone to the worst schools. They'd all been in, like, you know, 15 different foster homes in their life. Even if they knew their parents, their parents were in prison or their parents were addicts. There was one exception. There was one boy there named Brendan. He was like 18, African-American kid, very well-dressed, very well-spoken. And he told me that when he was a baby, he was adopted. And he was adopted by a ball player with the New York Yankees. And that the Yankee and his wife had adopted them. They were these fundamentalist Christians. And when he was a teenager and told them he was gay, they kicked him out of the house. So I would, this was like a famous New York Yankee. If you were in New York in 1990, everybody knew who this ball player was. So I was like, is this kid lying to me? This sounds crazy, but sure enough, I talked to his, the, the mother. I can't remember if I called her or she called me. 
And uh, she said, our son is leading a sinful lifestyle. And until he repents, he cannot live with us. So I just felt for all of these kids. I really did. You know, I feel like they've been screwed over their whole life. And now they're in this crappy, dirty, corrupt shelter. And frankly, I wasn't going to put up with it. There were some good staff there, but they weren't helping me at all. I finally went up to one woman. I was like, listen, you can see I'm just taking shots in these guys left and right. You know, will you please help me? And she was like, I'm not getting involved. I don't want to get involved. This is you and them. This is you and them. There was one person, though, who helped me. Margaret, the cook. I could tell she could see I was trying to do something good to help these kids. And one night I'm there working late, and she comes in to bring me dinner. And she slips this tray of food under me, and she whispers to me in my ear. And she says, you know, everybody talks in front of the cook like the cook isn't listening. But I am listening, and I need to tell you now, these guys are talking about physically harming you. That scared the shit out of me. In Williamsburg in 1990, it wouldn't have taken much for one of these guys to have me stabbed or shot. I was taking the subway and walking about 10 blocks. That was a dangerous trek. So that was not an idle threat to me. And I was like a wreck. I could hardly eat. My stomach was in a knot. I lost weight. I had trouble sleeping. I remember thinking, how did Malcolm X do it? How did Gandhi do it? How did Martin Luther King do it? How did they go about their day doing their work, knowing in the back of their mind someone was out there to get them, and they wouldn't know when it was going to happen or where it was going to happen, but it was coming. And that is not a, a fun way to live. So this went on for months. Finally, we caught a break. Paul called me one day. He goes, you know, I continue to get letters from these guys accusing you of all kinds of things. And not only are they outrageous, they're like misspellings and grammatical errors. I can't believe they have a high school diploma. Don't you need a high school diploma to work at Epiphany? And I said, yes, you do. You absolutely do. It's a state requirement. He said, well, I'm going to check and see if they really have the high school diploma. He called me like a week later. I'll never forget. He goes, we had a grand slam. I said, what? None of these guys have a high school diploma. So bang, we had rid of all of them. Resume, falsification, lack of qualifications. So with all these guys gone, Paul came in for a meeting. We had an all-staff meeting. We all sat around a big table. And I'll never forget, he, he pointed to me. He goes, this is your director. I need to know if you're all on board with him because we have a shitload of work to do to get this place back in shape. And one of them looked at me, a guy, his name was Valentine, and he said, we've all talked. You have our loyalty. And they did. And we put together a kick-ass program for homeless teenagers. We got kids jobs. We got kids into training programs. We got kids back into school. We got them into college. We got scholarships. We did classes on HIV prevention, budgeting, food preparation. I got new furniture. We repainted. I put sod in the backyard. I formed a touch football team. We played all over Brooklyn. And we even had bingo on Wednesday nights. These guys love bingo. It's still there. It's got a different name. It's called Independence Inn. 26 years later, it is still there. And the city was so impressed to be like a model program for homeless teenagers in New York City, and they funded four more just like it. So all these years later, it's there. So this whole episode 
was so formative for me. So number one, I didn't leave the field and go and sell computers. I stayed working with runaway and homeless teens. I'm the director of the largest program in Vermont for runaway and homeless kids. It's called Spectrum. It's in Burlington. So I still do that work. And to me, this work is like, it's like my passion. It's like my vocation. It's why I think I was put on this earth to help kids like this. This is a letter I got from a kid. The date is February 16th, 1991. This is a kid who was homeless, and we, we took him in an epiphany, and he left us, and he joined the Army. That was his thing. He wanted to join the Army. So I've held on to this letter for 26 years. I'm going to read you a few lines. Sometimes I lay down and think about my days at Epiphany. I know I was a pain, but that was the best place I've ever been, and I will never forget you all. Like I said before, I appreciate everything you've done for me. In a way, you saved my life. You took me in, gave me a home, and I took advantage and became a responsible man, married and with a career, thanks to all of you. Tell all the staff I miss them, and I keep Epiphany in my prayers. Good luck to you, and keep doing what you all done for me. So I learned from Paul, who I still talk to every couple of months, I learned from him how to work with kids like this, and I learned from him how important it is to support someone when they're being unfairly attacked. And I'll always be grateful to him for that. And the other person I'll always be grateful to is Margaret, the cook. Because when everybody else was standing on the sidelines and didn't want to get involved, she went out of her way to help me. And the lesson there is in life, when things are bad and your back's to the wall, you never know who's going to come to your aid and your assistance, sometimes from the most unlikely places. And when that happens, you'll remember that person and be grateful to that person for the rest of your life. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Fish 
behind me now. And we just heard from Mark Redmond. Remember, if you or anyone you know might like to share a story with us, we are always at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Never forget that if you want to work on your storytelling skills, we do all kinds of training, including video courses that you can take in your own time, one-on-one training over Skype, courses where you meet with other people in person in New York or Los Angeles or Minneapolis, corporate workshops, a workshop for your staff or your creative team. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, Today's the day. Take a risk. I remember the bus ride on the first day of school very well. Are you coming along? Mama said not to be taking rides from strangers. Danger! Stranger! Danger! Stranger! Danger. Stranger.